Welcome to the second episode of the Pluralist Podcast. This is your host, Hena Shahid. In this episode, we will be discussing the issues of identity, belonging, self-authorization, and growing up first-generation Muslim in the West. Joining us in this conversation is Mubin Sheikh, a former Islamist-turned-counter-extremist expert who now works at Parents for Peace. Welcome to the show, Mubin. Thank you so much for coming here and having this conversation with us. Thank you for having me, Hina. Here's a clip from Mubin's talk from the TED stage, where he shares the story of how he was bit by the jihadist bug, his de-radicalization, and eventually becoming an undercover counter-terrorism operative for the Canadian forces. Now, you see, extremists are made and not born. And my journey as a middle-class Muslim kid from Canada began at a Quran school that I attended every day of the week, every weekend. The boys were on one side, the girls were on another side, and both of us would be rocking back and forth in front of wooden benches, reciting the Quran by rote, not understanding a word of what we were reciting. If you made a mistake, you were slapped. We were beaten. We were put into a stress position. And this is where I was first introduced to the concept that religion is something violent. Of course, the public school that I went to during the day was the complete opposite of this environment. The boys and girls mixed. It was a nurturing, caring environment. You weren't slapped if you made a mistake. And this contrast would lay the foundation for an identity crisis, for my identity crisis, that would manifest later on in high school. Mubin, tell us a little bit about this clip. What did you mean by laying the foundation for the identity crisis? Yeah, um, so identity conflicts feature very prominent in the uh, in this context, this context being, let's call it, you know, the uh, radicalization trajectory in the West, okay, very generally speaking. And again, it, we have to be general because, you know, to start off, it's very important to understand that everybody's journey is individual, right? It's very, it's relative to the individual and it's relative to that individual's uh, position in their particular society in which they're living. So you could have, you know, two brothers from the same family living in the same home whose trajectories are different, right? So what I'm trying to establish at the outset here is that it's very individualistic. Uh, obviously, what is true for me may not be true for somebody else, and in fact, is not true for most other people. Um, but there are, I think, certain general concepts which do apply across the board, whether you're in, you know, the in North America, whether you're in Europe. And that's why I mentioned the West, right? As if you know, the West is some monolithic entity, which it's not. Uh, the experiences of Muslims in Canada is going to be different from the US, is going to be different from the UK, is going to be different from the Netherlands, is going to be different from Australia. Um, so it's important for us to realize that there are these different elements involved. 
But of course, because the West, quote unquote, does have certain uh, generic traits, if you will. So for example, their political systems are generally the same. Um, and so within this, you find um, members of minority groups who are first or even second generation or maybe even third generation who are still trying to figure out what is their role in their, in their life, uh, in the place in which they're living, right? So, you know, I'm a Muslim kid in Canada versus the UK, for example, right? The UK, let's say, has a colonial history, right, uh, as a colonizer. In fact, Canada was a colony of, of Britain. Um, so, and again, you know, Canada does not have this imperialistic or colonizing background. We have our own issues, maybe, um, and, you know, as uh, people who are trying to draw awareness to injustices historically or currently, you know, we have our issues with our First Nations people in Canada. This is similar to Australia. Australia was a colony as well. Although we are all members of the so-called British Commonwealth, uh, they were not colonized, and they too have issues with their Aboriginal. So there are similarities in some cases, and then there are differences. But within this context is this journey of, or this conflict over meaning, belonging, and identity. And this is something that affected me very greatly. So how do we resolve these identity conflicts? If a teenager who's going through this comes to you looking for advice, what would you say? So you have this, you know, uh, range of individuals, right? And their experiences are very different, in some cases similar, whatever. So let's start with the younger crowd, right? I think that's a little bit easier. And, you know, I always look back to what I was going through, you know, in, my, in, in those days before, let's say, I became extremist. When I was living my regular high school life or my regular teenage life, and very similar to what the vast majority of Muslim teenagers are going through, which is an identity crisis, or you know what is uh, our my role, right? How do I belong in society? This is you know especially for those of us who grow up in a very strict Muslim home, um, who have been taught the, the, this idea that, first of all, we always, we separate things into a very black and white thing. So, so what I mean to say is Muslim and non-Muslim. Mm. And this creates a black and white thinking, right? Black and white fallacy. Okay? Um, and this is a problem. This is a problem in Muslim community because when we live in a country and we say, oh, this is a kafir country, or this is a country for the kuffar, well, then we are excluding ourselves from the We are doing the marginalization. I was just talking yesterday about this topic as well. And yes, everyone has the right to dress the way they want. And if you want to wear a big beard and you want to wear a turban and you want to wear a, a thobe, you have the right to do that, right? Because you live in a Western country where, you know, the... The makeup of the country or the or the country is based on this notion of individual rights okay and this is something strange into the muslim context okay the muslim context generally favors the the society right like the greater good not the individual right so in a western country where we have these individual rights and people dress the way they dress you know i i make the argument that in fact you are marginalizing yourself from society. 
is you're telling people that I don't want to be like. Now, of course, we're not saying that you need to be like everybody else. The society itself kind of teaches people that, right? But when you look like you just came from Peshawar, Pakistan, or you came from somewhere in Afghanistan and you look like those people look, people are going to treat you that way, right? And especially if you are the, especially more hardcore, uh, you know, these are they're not Muslims and we've already created this otherness, right? This otherization of the entire society in which we live. So I'm not surprised that Muslim kids are having issues with their identity, meaning, and belonging in these societies because we have self-marginalized ourselves. We have done that. Hmm. And for those who want to be a part of the society, they are looked at as sellouts. They have, you know, and this idea that you've sold out your religion, right? Like, what does that even mean, right? Is it, does it mean that just because you have, like, you are a, a normal person, meaning that you have a job like everyone else has, you know, you go to work, you, you raise your family like other people are raising your family. Are you not doing what Islam has commanded you to do? Because Islam tells you, you know, raise your family, right? Protect your family from the, in, from the afterlife, from the hellfire is what, was, is what we teach ourselves. So, so there is this, I think, uh, confusion as to what we are even supposed to be doing. And so somebody who has, let's say, a regular nine-to-five job, you know, have, have they, like, are they what, are they any less Muslim or are they a bad Muslim because they work for non-Muslims or they're working in a society of non-Muslims? So this is, I think, a core issue, something that we need to tell ourselves as Muslims that we belong in these societies, right? We are here to, if, if you think that we are here to show people Islam, well, then show people your Islam. Well, what's the point of you showing your Islam to other Muslims? Right. Mm-hmm. If, if that's the point. So so I, I know I kind of went off on a tangent here, but what I'm trying to say is and then something that I would tell young people as well is that this is your society. Right. Like this is your home, especially if you're born here. This is your home. So you need to behave like this, right. You need to show even if the society around you is against your religion as you see it or. You know, this, of course, even for me now, I'm 44 years old. And of course, it bothers me if I see somebody making fun of the Prophet, alayhi salam, and, you know, doing what they do or insulting Islam. Of course, you should feel something in your heart that this is bad and this bothers you. But what are you going to do about it? And, and this is, I think, uh, I think the crux of the matter is that a lot of young Muslims, they see this and they don't know how to respond. Just generally to just the non-Muslim society they live in, or specifically to targeted harassment of Muslims. And mm. so this, I think, is something that should go into um, identity construction, to teaching people to realize that this is the society in which you live. This is the kind of junk you might have to hear and deal with. So how are you going to deal with it? How are you going to respond to it? And this, I think, is the, is the problem today because most young people don't have the skills, are not given the skills to deal with these issues. And so the immediate reaction is one of anger and then eventually violence. And then this just, you know, um, it, it's just a circle of violence that we keep running, running around. There is generally this tension in the newly immigrated communities between wanting to belong and being afraid of losing their identity, traditions, and, and culture. And that tension gets even more escalated 
when it's a matter of preserving religious identity and traditions? Yeah, the, this is a this is a thing, a point that I've heard made often is, you know, they, they tend to be more strict here than they are over there. And like you said, it's it's that fear of losing their religion, losing their culture, right? Um, and, and this is one of the reasons why, one of the main reasons I think that when immigrants come here, they are so strict on their kids. Now, this is a huge problem and completely counterproductive. Because this is, again, this is something that, you know, old world mentality, if I can use that phrase, why it fails. It fails because, number one, it doesn't take into consideration the society in which you're living. You are inundated, inundated on a daily basis in, in a Western society of things that we consider to be irreligious and non-religious. Okay? Um, look at the hyper-sexualization of the society we live in. When you're coming from a conservative Muslim society and you come here, this is, it's night and day. It's a completely different, it's an opposite uh, situation. And when you have parents coming from that background thinking that they can force compliance onto their children, they realize that it, it, it's not, well, they don't realize, unfortunately, but um, you will realize eventually that it's not going to work because what you're doing is you are putting the children in a vice. You're squeezing them from one side and the society is squeezing them from the other side. So what's happening to you in the middle? You're being, you're being squished. You're being crushed. And what's happening is this is why a lot of these Muslim kids who are first generation, even second generation, you know, what we find, so there are, there are different trajectories that we find come out of this. So let's say on the, you know, one end of it, they will, they will lose their religion. In, in some cases, they lose their religion because too much force, and they're basically forced to pick a side. So they're, gonna, they're not going to pick your side. They're going to pick the, so the society's side because that's where they live. That's where they're going to be living for the next, you know, for the rest of their life, unless they move back or they move somewhere else. So some of them, in an extreme case, they will lose their religion. Um, and, and you see this a lot, you know, uh, you know, there's uh, you see this phenomenon a lot. People, you know, kids of Muslims, they've lost their religion. Um, then you might get, then let's establish the other end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is the kids will become even more hardcore than their own parents. Uh, and they become very hard and that is their way to protect their religion they understand it from the influences from the society around them. so now there's a huge middle zone right and in that middle zone you get you know you have let's say closer to the you know the left side if you will very secularized you know there's not really you know they they might still self-identify as they might call themselves cultural muslims or whatever it is but they will still at least uh, use Islam as their identity or at least a part of their identity. And, they're, and they positively engage with it and, and interact with other members of the community and society accordingly. And on the other side of that spectrum, and just you know, less extreme from the person who doubles down on their religion and culture, are those who have a, I will call it, a moderate understanding. I don't like the term moderate Islam, like it's either Islam or it's not. But let's call it let's call it moderate, right? 
moderate on this spectrum because moderate from, you know, measured against the extremism of those who become real hardcore. Moderate in the sense that they are more than, they're not secular per se. I mean, some of them might not necessarily wear Islam on their sleeve or on their head or on their face, but they, they pray, you know, they have a good relationship with their religion and their functional positive members of society. This is what I think, you know, Islam expects of people. Do you think some of this conflict also arises from this this notion, this word that is used, um, that a lot of Muslims use, uh, ummah, which um, an Arabic word translated in English would be community. And so that notion that community is only your religious affiliation and not necessarily the place where you live. So you could be living in United States or let's say Canada, um, but they would refer to their ummah or their community as just the Muslims who could be living, you know, in China or Indonesia or wherever. Um, so could this interpretation, this narrow interpretation create a lot of issues of where, you know, do you think you belong and what is your community and, and what is your society? So this is an important point because, you know, now we're getting into a little bit of ideology, right? Like, and it's really, it's, so for example, the concept of ummah is a generic, let's say a general Islamic understanding, general Islamic belief, okay, that, that the Muslims are all, you know, um, an ummah, meaning we are the ummah of Muhammad, alayhi salam, right? We are the people, we are a people or a community, if you want to call it that. Again, there are so many ways you can, you know, translate that word. Um, but we say that when we say Ummah of Muhammad, alayhi salam, that we are followers of the, of the Prophet, alayhi salam. Okay, but that is, a, that is in terms of religious beliefs and doctrine. And so some people do say that, no, Ummah means humanity, all of humanity, whether Muslim or not. So you can have a shared religious understanding with some people. For example, even me living in Canada, you know, I'm a Muslim and many people around me are not Muslim. Okay, so we don't have a shared religious platform, if you will, but we are all, you know, brothers in, and sisters in humanity, at least. And the Sufis are big on this, right? The Sufis talk about, you know, when you see somebody or somebody who is, you don't ask them, if somebody is poor, you don't ask them, are you Muslim or not Muslim, before you give them charity, you don't ask them their religion. Mm. If they are hurt or something or they need your help, you don't ask them first, are you Muslim? Excuse me. What kind, Are you a Sunni Muslim? Are you a Sunni Sufi Muslim? Are you a Sunni Sufi Naqshbandi Muslim? We don't, we don't do that. So this is, I think, something that even young people who are, uh, who are being taught, you know, what is Islam and what is Ummah, this is something that we, we fail to understand. And if we stick to only this interpretation that no ummah only means Muslim, then we are going to constantly live in this state of otherization, constantly. You talked about identity construction of Muslim youth in the West. There is no one particular Muslim identity or, or culture. Um, it's really a diverse set of people with shared religious beliefs. But there is this widespread notion among the average Muslims, um, and especially in the context of extremist Muslims or Islamists, 
who think of Muslims as a monolith and a homogenous group where everyone looks the same, acts the same, dresses up the same way, basically devoid of any diversity. How, sh- how should that notion be tackled um, to really create this, this identity construction for Muslim youth, which is very uh, multicultural and, and multifaceted? That's a very good, very good point because the idea, this issue of multiple identities, is it's studied. It's something that scholars have studied across society, um, and certainly for whether it's especially for young people because they they do need this identity construction or help with identity construction and identity protection. Um, the important thing is to so, for example, I always filter everything through the Islamic paradigm, right? I'm one of those people who, who, who do that. Um, you know, for me, everything like, you know, I, I, because I'm Indian background, right? And I grew up, you know, in Indian, in an Indian family and seeing the way that culture went. And, and I realized even when I was a teenager that I did not want to be, I didn't want to even get married to an Indian person because I knew that I was living in Canada and this was going to be where I'm going to pretty much, you know, live. And my future generation is also going to live here. So I thought to myself that I would deliberately marry even out of my culture because I did not like some aspect of Indian culture. And because what I learned from the religion, I realized that, wait a second, this conflicts with the religion. And so I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I did consider that I had, I was a product of Canadian culture, so Western culture, if you will. Um, and, you know, again, what does that mean, right? But, but I grew up with notions of, you know, equal rights between men and women, for example, right? This is something that was, you know, reinforced through schooling, through my, you know, peer groupings, like people that we hung out with. And so I remember telling myself, I'd, I didn't even want to be Indian. Now, and you mentioned this point earlier about, you know, where culture and religion do mix and sometimes it does. And so, and so how does one navigate? Well, what's the religious part and what's the cultural part, right? Because there are, like I said, some things that, that do not conflict. And in fact, culture is even used as a proof in Islamic law. It's called the urf. Urf is the custom in mm. which you live and where you live. And urf, if it did not conflict with Islamic beliefs, was something that you could use. So I look back to the, if you look back in the early Islamic Islamic history period of the fuqaha, of the jurists, uh, a great example is, um, you know, uh, um, Imam Shafi'i. Imam Shafi'i is one of the four mujtahid imams. And, you know, he studied his thing, you know, in one place, in the Hijaz. And then when he went to Egypt, he realized that the society was very different than it was in the Hijaz. And in fact, many of his opinions changed. His, his legal opinion, like Islamic legal opinion. And, you know, some people think that Islamic law is so rigid in this sense. But in fact, you realize it's actually not that rigid. Because for this mujtahid imam to change his opinion because of what he experienced in a different society and the culture that it came with, tells you that in fact you can play around with that 
And that's something that I think young Muslims need to hear because this is what prevents you from rejecting your cultural background completely, right? Because that's not a solution either. Remember I mentioned on that, ex and that spectrum, that one extreme is they leave their culture and their religion completely, right? Mm -hmm. So in order to prevent that or to protect from that and to assist with the creation of a healthy identity is to show them that here, here is what Islam teaches and to give them actually a relaxed form of Islam that it, to remind people that Islam is not as rigid as you know the Saudis might tell you or the Salafis, like some who are strict Salafis. You know, I, I don't want to disparage all the Salafis, of course, um, but I do want to say that there is this mentality that I see very prominent in Salafi circles, and I was among them, I was with them in their Salafi circles, that teaches people this rigid, rigid way of life where basically, you know, uh, to them, Allah is frozen in a, in a desert in Arabia. Hmm. You know, they create this understanding that we must live like, the Prophet salam lived. Like life as it was 1400 years ago. Exactly. And, and, and that's impossible. That is impossible. Time moves forward. We don't move back. And you'll notice something. When they say we have to live like the Prophet salam lived or the Salaf al-Salih lived, the first three generations. Well, where did 1,300 years of history go? Down the drain. Right? All the science that took place all the mixing that Muslims did into other societies and how they developed unique identities and unique cultures in those societies. That's all gone down the drain. And when we don't, and this is the thing, how do you talk to kids about that? You show them that this is a history that we have of over 1,400 years that encompasses many different areas of the world. Take, for example, when the early Muslims you know, I always give an example. Muslims and Islam, in many cases, did spread by military force. That is a fact of, of life, okay? Um, Muslims showed up on the shores of Spain with a navy, on the shores of France with a navy. We didn't go there with lollipops and rainbows, right? But at the same time, look at Southeast Asia. If you go to Indonesia, Malaysia, and those areas, there were no armies that were sent to those places. And yet those places are majority Muslim. How? Why? And we say because uh, Muslim businessmen and business people went there and they interacted with the society and they were so honest and good with the people that the people themselves said, who are like, look how good these people are. There must be something true about what they believe for them to behave like. And so people became Muslim because of that. So you have these different cultures. Looking at India, for example, you know, you have, you see today, you know, there's a animosity towards Islam in India by, you know, I'll say by the government. Why? Because they feel that Islam took their society away, took their identity, their Hindu identity away. Now they forget, you know, in the early period, yes, in fact, Sufi Muslims arrived in India and Sufi Muslims were responsible for spreading Islam without any forcing people, right? Forcing of people. If you look at, and what I'm trying to show you is the different examples and influences that Muslims had on cultures and societies. 
So the point I'm trying to show is that even in India, you had the good Muslim ruler who was invaded and attacked by another Muslim ruler, right? Yeah. And and he was a bad ruler, and 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 Hindus totally dislike him because of what he did, and rightfully so because he oppressed the people, forcing people to convert, destroying temples, converting them into masjids. So so this shows you that throughout that history, we've gone to Spain. I mean, Islam was in Spain for hundreds of years. You know, Jewish religion uh, flourished and Jewish philosophy flourished under Muslim rule in Spain. Why? We didn't go around forcing people to convert. So, so this is to show these young people who are trying to understand that Islam is not about trying to live like the Arabs lived in the Arabian desert in the 600s or the 700s. That's not Islam, right? Islam, the belief, yes, came in the Quran and came in the Sunnah of the Prophet But this was, this is so that people could live in any society that they went to, whether they went to China and they went to China, whether they went to the Americas and they even went to the Americas. Right. Wherever they went, they could still be Muslim and be a part of that society. For the last decade and a half, there has been a lot of attention on Islamist extremism. But that was not always the case. In the 80s in Europe, there was a rise of neo-Nazis. And given the current events, the spotlight is back on the white supremacist, um, neo-Nazis and any other white power groups. Have you come across certain similarities or characteristics between people who join extremist organizations? May they be based on race or religion? Yeah, yeah, you do actually see quite a few overlaps. Let me give you an anecdote here. Uh, so we, uh, we went to Germany and we were talking to um, criminal intelligence department in Stuttgart, Germany. And these were, you know, white Germans who were investigating Islamists or jihadists, whatever you want to term you want to use, bad Muslims, okay, extremist, bad Muslims. And the guy says to me, he says, uh, you know, when we were first, I he says to me, you know, I investigated neo Nazis, you know, in the eighties, neo Nazis were a big movement in Germany, and I investigated for many many years. And then when things died down and things changed around. And then jihadists became the issue. They tasked me to be an investigator against these guys. And I thought to myself, how am I going to investigate these people? Like, I don't know their culture. I don't know their religion. How am I going to investigate? And then he says to me, we realized as we watched them and observed them, that in fact, they were very similar to the neo-Nazis. Right? So, I, and, and this is great because when he started to say this to me, I thought to myself, yeah, what? How do you even do that if you feel you're an investigator and like you feel, how am I going to do this? So he says, you know, the neo-Nazis would hang out at particular places, right? So they would socialize around, they would have their places of socialization. So these extremists, they had the same thing. Some of them were hanging around certain extremist mosques and that's where they would hang out. Okay. Number two, he says, we realized that uh, that sense of brotherhood and family was a huge component, especially for young people who may have been having issues with their parents, who may have had issues with their school or 
workplace or whatever, and for whatever reason, many reasons that they feel that they did not belong, they would seek out individuals who were like them so that they would feel that they belong. So that there's your number two, your sense, that sense of brotherhood and belonging is something that was common in both. Number three, you had a cohesive ideology. So whether it was the belief in white power or it was a belief in Muslim power, uh, it was the same thing. Whether you believed that they were mud people or, you know, however they disparagingly referred to as non-whites, the extremists would say, kufar, these kufar, they're all kufar, otherization, right? Hmm. Um, the idea of they had, the neo-Nazis had racial holy war. Hmm. Well, what the extremists call it, jihad, right? They misuse jihad, of course. Uh, we don't believe what they are doing is jihad. Jihad is a legitimate uh, conflict, uh, you know, uh, 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 a war tradition with rules of engagement, right? And, and I always define this, you know, terrorism is to jihad what war crimes are to rules of engagement. Or terrorism is to jihad what adultery is to marriage. Mm. So, so the ideas that they had were actually very, very similar. But they just, the label was a different label. Hmm. So, so you see this, you see, in fact, when you strip away the labels, you realize that the mechanisms are the same, meaning in belonging, identity, um, you know, ideology, you know, so these things were similar. This radicalization, you know, the process, the journey that you went through was was different in those times where you you met people and you were part of certain groups where it was um, face to face and it was about knowing a certain group of people. Um, but what is happening now with the with different um, different social mediums, um, with different devices, uh, with having all these connections? Uh, throughout the world on on fingertips, um, where it's not necessarily about somebody influencing you in person. Um, there is this new um, new new word that we use, um, self radicalization, and that is what's on the rise. You never meet these people; you have no idea about their actual context. You see things, you hear things, and and it just leads you to a different path. So in today's context of radicalization, what, what needs to be done? How do we as educators, parents, um, how do we, and as a community, as a society, how do we ensure that our young people, our teenagers do not go down that path? And it's, it's difficult, right? Um, it's easy to say, oh, you know, parents, keep an eye on your kids. But what, I mean, what, what does that mean, right? But there are certain things that you can, you can see, right? Certain signs. But one of the things that we say is, um, you know, they will tell you. So number one is looking to see if they view other people in, in a very general way, uh, whether it's all Jews or all Christians or all non-Muslims, whatever it is. Um, they will, they will show these things. And, um, you know, the best way to deal with that is to actually discuss these issues, right? is to openly discuss them. 
right? And especially as adults, it's weird because I run into this problem with my own kids, okay? When I try to explain things to them, like the logic of how things work, oh, they don't want to hear it, right? Oh, well, how, who are you to tell me? What do you know? You know, I'm 17. I know everything, right? And it, it's funny because I did the same thing to my own parents. I know better, right? So how are you going to explain to, how are you going to convince, you know, kids who think like that, that you do know better? So you can't. All you can do is lay the foundation, okay? It's, it's like bricks on a road. All you can do is put those bricks down, put those bricks down, and what those kids will be doing is they'll just, you know, meander along that path thinking they know everything until they realize when they look down, wait a second, there's a brick road that I'm walking. Right? That's, that's the only way that you're going to deal with it. You will never, ever, and I don't even think, I don't even think this is possible. Uh, but you will never convince your child in one setting or even in a few settings what the situation is, right? It, just get that out of your head, right? Don't think that you're, you're going to argue it into them or you're going to intellectually convince them. The best thing to do is just have that positive relationship with them to let them know that, listen, you know what? And no matter where you are, I don't care. Okay. You're going out with your friends. I don't even care what you're doing. Just don't break the law. You know, if police show up here, like I'm not going to protect you, right? If, if you get arrested, you get arrested. Um, but to give them the confidence that even if I screw up and I go, let's say I went to a house party or something and something happened and my friend got drunk and now, you know, there's nobody to drive, you know, because you tell your kids don't get into a car with a drunk driver you know, these basic values tell them these things. And even if they're calling you from a house party saying, listen, come pick me up because nobody's here. This is how you engage positive. Believe me, even me as a parent, I feel it all the time that I'm, I'm compromising my authority and I'm giving away my authority because I'm not able to, you know, um, um, force it through, force it. Even I feel that right. As a parent and any parent would feel that it's natural. But as adults, we have to realize that sometimes we have to kind of let things go a little bit because the greater objective we have is more important. So mm -hmm. that's, that's a better way for parents to look at it. You will not, you will absolutely not succeed in, uh, you know, cutting them off of the internet, taking away their device. And that is not going to, that is not going to do it. And what you need to do is just discuss these topics honestly and openly. You're currently part of Parents for Peace. Tell us a little bit about that organization and, you know, what does the organization do and, and what's the connection with youth and, and radicalization? The idea of Parents for Peace is to, is to be a place for parents to have a non-judgmental, you know, safe place, if you will, with other like-minded parents who are going through similar things. It's, it's a nonpartisan organization. We don't talk about politics. Uh, we're not interested in politics. We're interested in helping these parents deal with their situation. And so uh, there is a number even, we have a helpline that you can call. It's 1-8-444-9-PEACE. That's 1-8-444-9-PEACE. And that's for both parents and educators to call in to say, look, you know, it's it, there's no connection to government on that line. So it's safe in that sense. It's all anonymized. 
the the people who answer there, you know, the psychotherapist, uh, individuals who can help, whether you're an employer, an educator, a parent, just to ask questions. Look, my kid is doing this. Should I be worried? So how do we mitigate the risks then? If you can see with your open eyes, something that's right there. Uh, and, and parents have seen this, you know, like explosives material, you know, or propaganda, right? It could be a kid who's got like a white power pamphlet, you know, and, and if you see that, we teach parents and others that you don't freak out on them. You don't jump down their throat. You ask them nicely. And like, even I always say, ask them like you're dumb, you know, like you're the dumb parent. Hey, what's this? What's that about? And get them to talk and ask them questions. If you push your kids away, they will be pushed into the open arms of extremists and other predators who will gladly take your kids away from you. Hmm. So, you know, so choose wisely, both the kids and the parents. Mubin Sheikh is a counter-extremism expert. He is the co-author of Undercover Jihad, Inside the Toronto 18, Al-Qaeda-inspired homegrown terrorism in the West, a book based on his time working undercover with the Canadian Security Intelligence Service and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Thank you. Really, really appreciate all the time that you've given us. Thank you so much. Very welcome. Most welcome. Thank you all. Thank you for joining us and listening to the conversation.